Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.31 and the 2018 edition. This is, in fact, the second part of my discussion of the 1.31 release, and today I'm covering the largest of the changes which are specific to the 2018 edition, as well as a few more of the changes that are in both editions. Note that I'm only talking about the largest changes for the 2018 edition. There are a number of other smaller ones that you're less likely to run into in practice, but which are still nice improvements. So you should definitely read the entire edition guide. I've linked it in the show notes, as always. First, let's talk about the show's current sponsor. Parity Technologies continues to sponsor New Rust Station. They're advancing the state of the art in decentralized tech, and they're using Rust. They lean hard on Rust's trifecta of safety, speed, and correctness as they're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of their larger projects are Substrate, which is a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, which is a platform for leveraging blockchain tech for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. And they're not just using Rust, they're hiring Rust developers. So if you'd like to work on any of those projects, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. Okay, now let's dig into the remaining features in 1.31, and then we'll talk about the 2018 edition big deal pieces. Up first, 1.31 had a bunch of tooling-related stabilizations. Clippy and Rust format both stabilized, and so did support for lint attributes in your code base. Clippy is named for the old paperclip helper in Microsoft Office, which would prompt you with little things like, it looks like you're trying to write a letter. Clippy provides a bunch of extra lints to make for more maintainable and more idiomatic Rust. And it's now shipped standard. So it's available automatically to you. It should help you make sure that what you're writing isn't just strictly safe in the Rust make sure it's memory safe category, but also good Rust and much more likely to do the kinds of things you want. Clippy has been around for a long time, but it's now part of the default tooling and it ships automatically with the language as a result. You should Turn on the Clippy integration in your editor. You can use it in anything from Vim to Visual Studio Code, and you'll end up writing better Rust. And of course, you can tailor it to show you or not the particular lints you care about. The next tool which got stabilized with 1.31 is Rust Format. Some people say it Rust Fumped, but it's Rust Format. Rust Format is an automatic code formatting tool. It has been in development for close to three years now. The repository reports the first commit was back in April 2016, and I believe there's prior art in Rust before that. Since then, it has gone through a lengthy process of developing both the tool itself to make sure it works all the time, and the official formatting standards. The formatting standards actually got their own RFC process. The result of all of that work is a really fast, really nice tool that, in my experience, works really well and produces great results about 99% of the time. And that last 1% of the time, it produces results I can live with. Even when they're not what I would choose, they're fine. And having an auto formatter for your code is genuinely great. I've been using Prettier for auto formatting in JavaScript and TypeScript for the last few years. And even with the quirks there, I just can't imagine ever going back to not having an auto formatter. One of my favorite little things about it is that I just write stuff that's syntactically correct, but not at all well formatted because I know that I'll hit the save button and the file will get formatted into something reasonably nice. 
And as of 1.31 in 2018 edition, Rust format is stable at 1.0. And this means that the tool guarantees backwards compatibility on its output. If you run it on your code, it will consistently give you the same results from this point forward. And that's a really big deal. It wasn't true during the development of the tool. And well, it's still not true for Prettier because Prettier thinks breaking changes are fine. It's actually quite annoying. That's not going to be happening all the time with Rust. So you can now integrate it into your commit flow or your continuous integration flow and be confident that you're not going to get spurious results out of that or have a bunch of churn and noise as it changes all the time. Last, to go with these, there are some nice new language features, tool-level attributes for Lint. For both Clippy and Rust format, as well as for other tools in the ecosystem, there are sometimes places or times where you want to explicitly opt out of the tool's behavior, even though you're opted into using it in general. You might have specific reasons to format things in a particular way, for example. In macros, that comes up sometimes. Or you might have a specific reason to ignore Clippy's advice in one spot, even though you agree with that advice generally in your code base. Historically, you had to write tool rules with the config attribute attribute, which, yes, that's a long thing to say. And writing it out that way was long. You had to write the attribute CFG underscore atter with the arguments feature equals cargo hyphen clippy, comma, allow iter nth to disable the iter nth lint. Now you can just write the attribute allow clippy colon, colon, iter, nth. This is way better. Nice improvements all around. There's another big feature, and the last big feature, to stabilize on both the 2015 and 2018 editions. Const functions. A const function is a function which has a constant valued expression as its result, and which can therefore be computed at compile time instead of at runtime. There's a very specific subset of Rust which is currently allowed in these const functions to guarantee that you will indeed always get a constant value for the result of the function. I'll refer you to the reference for details. I actually helped tweak that language in the process of writing this episode so that it would be clearer. The compiler is allowed to compute the result of a const function in any context. It's only required to do so in so-called const contexts. I've linked, again, the reference for that for detailed reading there. But you can understand const contexts as contexts where the expression in question must be evaluated at compile time. There are only a few of those in the language today. Array length expressions like the three after I32 in the expression, let there be an array of I32 semicolon three equaling one, two, and three. That is, this is an array of length three of I32s with these specific values, one, two, and three. Related, repeat length expressions. So you can write brackets around zero semicolon five, and that five is the repeat length. That syntax produces an array of five elements, all of them set to the value zero. And finally, any initializer for constants, statics, or enum discriminants. So that's a pretty small list, and honestly, those aren't things I often use, but every one of them is guaranteed to actually execute a constant function at compile time. 
The compiler is allowed to evaluate constant functions in lots of places, almost any place. So the list of places where const functions do get evaluated is likely to expand in the future. So is the list of the allowed kinds of operations in a const function. But now we have a decent starting point for this kind of operation. And optimization is the right description here. Const functions can be a pretty big deal for runtime performance. If you have some operation which takes a while to run, but which can be reused throughout the life of the program, you can save your users a lot of overhead with const functions by doing that compilation once on your source machine instead of repeatedly on every user's machine and possibly even repeatedly in the runtime of the program. It's kind of like the way that function inlining can improve performance by reducing the number of jumps you have to make, but many times over. However, as is nearly always the case for the triangle of runtime performance, safety, and compile time speeds, we're paying for it somewhere. In this case, since the computation happens at compile time, you're paying for it, well, at compile time. And that's sometimes exactly the right trade-off. But as with all trade-offs, it's very important to understand that you're making a trade-off so that you can make it explicitly. In many cases, the benefit of doing a const function is so small that it's not worth it. However, in a number of contexts, including high-performance numeric computing, this is a game-changer, and it has historically been one of the largest reasons to continue preferring C++ over Rust on simply a language feature level. So we're getting some nice parity there. Now, let's switch to talking about 2018 edition-only features. We'll talk about changes to the language syntax, improvements to the module system, and non-lexical lifetimes. The syntax changes in the 2018 edition, which I talked about the mechanics of last time, are very small. It's no exaggeration to say that this is probably the smallest set of breaking changes to a language I've ever seen, and likely one of the smallest sets of breaking changes any language has seen. The only quote-unquote removals here are removing a few new keywords from the set of previously valid identifiers for non-keywords, so for item bindings, meaning since these new keywords are keywords, you can't use them anymore to name a function or a variable or anything else. And that list of additions is very short. There are only four, dine, async, await, and try. But wait, you say, wasn't Dyn already a keyword in the 2015 edition? Didn't you talk about it back in the Rust 1.27 episode when Dyn trait was stabilized? The answer is kind of. I did indeed talk about it then, but Dyn was not a full keyword in the 2015 edition. It was what the Rust reference calls a weak keyword, or what you'll sometimes hear referred to as a contextual keyword. That is, a keyword that's not a keyword everywhere, but only in specific locations in the language's grammar. Contextual keywords are essentially workarounds for times when you really wish you had made a keyword before, but you didn't, but you can kind of make it work by saying it's a keyword in these specific locations. The downside to them is that they're more work for the lexing phase of the compiler, where it turns all the various tokens into their language-level semantics. Is Dyn a keyword or just a regular identifier? Well, in the 2015 edition, we don't know, not until we see the next item. The 2018 edition promotes it to being a full keyword, so now it's invalid to use as any other kind of identifier, whereas it was perfectly legal to use in most positions in the 2015 edition. Async, await, and try are now all reserved keywords. 
None of them mean anything on stable Rust today, but the language design and therefore also compiler team expect them to mean something in the future. Async and await are definitely going to be used as part of the story around asynchronous programming with the future type, and we expect that to stabilize sometime here in the first half of 2019. Try, on the other hand, is a little murky. There have been a lot of discussions about ways we might improve error handling ergonomics, and it's honestly not yet clear that any of them are winners. Try is reserved for the 2018 edition to make a number of those options possible, but it's an open question whether any changes will happen there at all. Now, you might be wondering, what if I have a code base where I actually used one of these keywords a bunch? Maybe you were using async in a lot of places as a shorthand for some kind of asynchronous operation. Well, Rust has your back here. You don't have to do a global find and replace operation. That would be terrible. Instead, the cargo fix with the addition flag we covered in the last news episode will rewrite any uses of these new keywords using another new feature in the language, raw identifiers. A raw identifier is an identifier prefixed by r pound symbol. And this doesn't come out of nowhere. The format is similar to the raw string syntax, which you may or may not have ever run into. I've linked it in the show notes to look at if you haven't. It's handy, but it doesn't come up all that often. The cargo fix command with the addition flag will therefore rewrite every use of async as an identifier to r pound async. It's not the prettiest thing in the world, but it solves the problem nicely, and it actually means that you can now use any keyword as an identifier as long as you give it that leading r pound. So if you want to use function as a keyword, r pound fn it is. Up next are the module system improvements. We covered the first major part of this when it was stabilized with Rust 1.30, so it's obviously compatible with Rust 2015. There's a remaining piece, Uniform Paths, which will ultimately be part of the 2018 edition, but it's currently still nightly only. So I'll refer you to the news episode for 1.30 for a full walkthrough on the changes which already stabilized, and to some future episode for the Uniform Paths component. I didn't want to push out two episodes on the edition release without at least mentioning it, though, not least since I know a fair number of people will probably listen to this that haven't listened to other episodes. In any case, these changes to the paths and module system are big improvements and they're important changes. So please do listen to that earlier episode and read the edition guide section on these changes. Now, there's one major feature that landed as part of the 2018 edition that was not part of previous releases, non-lexical lifetimes. This is something the Rust compiler and language team have been working toward for literally years, and it's a massive improvement to the way that lifetime tracking works in the compiler. Uh, a fun aside, at least fun for me, a lot of this work was unlocked by something I talked about in considerable detail back in the very first dedicated news episode of this show a couple of years ago when I covered Mir, the mid-level intermediate representation in the compiler. It's also worth note before I dig into the details that this is presently landing only in the 2018 edition, but the team expects to backport it to work with 2015 edition Rust in a future point release as well. So, non-lexical lifetimes, what exactly is this? Well, the name of the feature tells us all the pieces we need to understand what's changing here. And at some point, we'll all just think of these as lifetimes, plain and simple. But for right now, they're named in contrast with how lifetimes have historically worked. Up till this point, lifetimes were lexical. That is, they had the same life as lexical scopes, blocks in Rust. 
If you borrowed something anywhere in a block, whether that was a function, a for loop, a match block, etc., it was borrowed until the end of the curly braces for that block, the end of the scope of that block. This is why one of the workarounds for a fair number of hairy situations you'd run into with the borrow checker has been to introduce a local block, just a pair of local curly braces. Then, the lifetime and borrow analysis that the compiler did could understand that something was no longer borrowed at the end of that block, that lexical scope, and the rest of your function could do what you wanted. This is super frustrating, though. As a user, you can look at a number of things in your code and say, Rust, no, I'm I'm done with this borrow up here. Why can't you see that I'm no longer borrowing it and let me borrow it again later? Ah! And you bang your head against the wall and you put a block here or you rewrite a bit so that things line up and you make the borrow checker happy, but it's frustrating. And a lot of times those workarounds are ugly and sometimes they don't even get you everything you want. So for the last several years, and Again, that's not an exaggeration. This has been in progress for most of the life of the 2015 edition. The team has been working on a new approach to the borrow checker's understanding of lifetimes. And this is tricky because the new version has to get three things right. First, it has to let through everything that the old borrow checker let through because we don't want to break existing code. This is, after all, even though it's a new edition, still just a point release. Stuff should keep working. Two, it has to properly let through as many new things as it can. The whole point here is to improve what things the borrow checker treats as valid, which you and I can see are valid. And three, it has to be sound. That is, it has to properly and rightly uphold all of Rust's normal memory guarantees. And point three there trumps points one and two. Correctness is the most important thing for the borrow checker. Happily, this isn't just a hypothetical point, and the new borrow checker is actually better than the old one. You may recall that the new engine correctly identified potential soundness bugs that got through with the old borrow checker, the bugs which ended up triggering the 1.27.1 and 1.27.2 releases earlier this year. Non-lexical lifetimes work by tracking a much more sophisticated graph of where and how values and the references to them interact. For the nitty-gritty details, I'll direct you to a series of blog posts by Nico Matsakis dating back to April 2016, which show the evolution of thinking around this in considerable detail. At a high level, it's enough to understand that non-lexical lifetimes work by using the control flow graph from Mir. That control flow graph makes it possible for the compiler to determine exactly when a given value is live, and therefore valid to have a reference to, and when given references are live, and thus valid or invalid for there to be other references to the same data. This is one of the advantages of something like Mirror. You would never want to write something in the extremely long-form style that Mirror uses yourself, but it makes all of these kinds of relationships extremely clear in a way that the rest of the compiler can take advantage of. On top of the non-lexical bits of the lifetime improvements, there are also a couple of other smarter lifetime analyses that landed as part of this. One of my favorite examples of these and one that makes it really easy to see these improvements in practice is a simple example. I've linked a playground with this in the show notes. Sometimes you want to write something like, and you'd probably never write exactly this example, but something like vec.push, vec.leng as its argument. That is pushing the length of a vector as its last entry. Now, on Rust 2015, this just doesn't work. Vec.push mutably borrows vec, and then Vec.len tries to borrow it as well, and the compiler just says, nope. 
in Rust 2018, it works fine because the compiler can tell that the vec.len call effectively happens before vec.push and that there's no other mutations that can happen before that temporary value created by vec.len gets used by vec.push. In other words, the same workaround you would use writing a temporary value in line, the compiler sees, checks is valid, and does the right thing. There are many more of these kinds of wins. The net of it is that a lot of things where you historically would have fought with the borrow checker, you won't have to anymore, which is a lot of fun for those of us who've been using the language up to this point, but it's going to be really great for everybody who shows up now and just doesn't actually have the experience of fighting with the borrow checker the way all of us have. And that's it, or at least that's all of it that I'm going to be able to cover. This is a huge release, and I think it sets Rust up really, really well for the future. Since the 1.0 release, we've seen a ton of cleanup and improvement in the language. So this is a great time to introduce Rust to colleagues or friends who haven't heard about it, though if you're like me, they've probably heard about it, or who looked at it in the past and decided to wait before diving in. This is the time. Thanks to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included Daniel Collin, Scott Moeller, Ramon Buckland, Michael McDonald, Johan Anderson, Olushe Shonaya, Stefan Lohensunda, Anthony Deschamps, Rob Chuk, Benham Esfabod, Matt Rudder, Ryan Osiol, Embark Studios, Nick Stevens, Paul Naranja, John Rudnick, Daniel Mason, Nicholas Pochet, Andrew Dirksen, Alexander Payne, Graham Willidal, Jerome Froelich, Bjorn, Dan Abrams, Joseph Marhi, Chip, Nathan Scully, Adam Green, Chris Palmer, James Higgins II, Jonathan Knapp, Rafe Levine, Peter Tillemans, Nick Gidio, Brian Stitt, Jacob Dinar, Brian McAllister, Martin Hugh Schober. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash newrustation or a number of places listed at the show website, newrustation.com. You'll also find scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes and transcripts for a number of the interviews and full show notes for every episode. Notes for this episode are at newrustation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore 131 slash part two. If you like the show, do tell others about it, please. You can tell them in person, you can share it on social media, you can rate and review it in a podcast directory or something clever that I haven't even thought of. The show is on Twitter at New Rust Station. I'm there at Chris Kreitcho, and I do like getting news items from you, and I do try to retweet those as well. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Lobsters, Reddit, Hacker News, etc. And you can always just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Until next time, when I talk about the Rust 1.32 release, wow, this is a lot of news episodes. Happy coding. Happy coding.